Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my YouTube videos. Hey, everybody. I have a little thing I need to say right away before we get going on the questions for this week. And if you want to skip this, it's totally fine. I will put a little uh, note here on uh, where you can skip to in the video so you don't have to listen to me talk about this. But this is a little personal and a little bit having to do with being a channel owner and content creator and public figure. I think at this point, it's safe to say that once you get past like 30,000 subscribers on YouTube, that you can kind of get away with calling yourself a public figure. And before that, or, you know, I've always sort of jokingly referred to myself as a semi-public figure because I, you know, because whatever, it's it's just a little following here on YouTube. It's really not that big of a thing. But I, um, but it's something, it's not nothing. And it's taken me years to build up and it's, and it's been a lot of work and a, a lot, a lot of work. Uh, doing this, you know, putting all this together, putting these videos together for you guys and throwing it out there as a work and labor of love that I originally was doing just to get the word out about Scientology. And as the years went on and I expanded my my field of interest, uh, you know, I, I embraced other cults. And this actually became something I was able to do for a living. And it's not been a great living. I don't make any real money doing this. I'm always in the red. And um, I'm, you know, barely keeping a roof over my head, but this is the thing I love to do. And I, and, I, and I really feel good about, you know, trying to help and educate people. The dark side or bad side or negative side of doing this kind of work is that you get criticized for it. And I am spectacularly bad at receiving criticism. And you guys know this. I mean, this is not something that is uh, some big secret, <laughs> but I've never particularly openly discussed it before. I've tried to deal with it. I've been, you know, the, the thing about becoming a person in the public eye is your viewpoint about yourself and about your work and about the public in general changes because you are engaging with people at a much different level than you guys as individuals who just, you know, who comment or have feedback or have things to say. You know, we receive as content creators a tremendous amount of feedback on our work, both positive and negative. F thankfully for me, over all these years, the responses have been overwhelmingly positive. And, you know, my videos have high percentages of likes. And, you know, if I judge it by that or views or, you know, uh, the, the kind of feedback I get, it is overwhelmingly positive. And I should be, it's ridiculous that I get involved in or harp on the criticism as much as I do, but it's a flaw. It's a character flaw that I have. I stick on it. And I'm well aware of the fact that a lot of people have a negativity bias. I've talked about that. And our brains are tuned to pay attention to threats and, and negativity in our environment five times more than positivity or things that are going well. And that makes sense. But it also becomes unreasonable when it's really just commentary and criticism. I mean, it's, it's a little silly how, how worked up we can get about this stuff. And, and I'm talking about me, how worked up I can get about it. And so I acknowledge that. I do. I, I, I own it. I, it is a flaw that I have. And I say that so openly because it's something I've been struggling with for quite a while now. I've been well aware of this. I have been aware of the fact that when I get critical commentary uh, about my work, I will sometimes react harshly to that, especially, and this is what gives me justification for reacting harshly, is when I am insulted in the process or negative things are said about me in the process. If you call me a somebody who still never left the cult or somebody who is a moron, you know, I don't agree with that. And you're a moron for thinking it, you know, this kind of thing. It hurts, right? Obviously. And I can dish that right back out as readily as I get it. And I always feel horrible about myself for doing so. I do. I, you, you no idea. I beat myself up way harder than anyone is ever going to criticize me. I criticize myself, right? And I take that very, very personally. And that is my problem. And I'm acknowledging that right now, openly, honestly, to you guys, just like I've openly acknowledged all kinds of other things over the years. I have done been, been really open. I have been very, very transparent with, uh, with my audience about my own experiences, my own feelings, my struggles, and my, and my difficulties. And this is actually really one of them. And so now 
I find myself thinking as a now somebody who really can claim expertise in a professional field and, you know, somebody who really does know what they're talking about. I, I can now own that, but I have to own the fact that I have to deal with criticism of my work and, and the things that I do. And, um, and because I don't deal well with that, I am pulling back from that part of the engagement process as a creator. And in other words, I'm not going to, you know, respond to comments anymore. And I'm not, and I've removed myself from social media entirely. YouTube is the only place I'm really online anymore as a, as a presence. I'm no longer on Facebook. And I explained at the time that I left Facebook months ago, that that was a moral decision. It was not an engagement problem so much for me as it was a moral problem with even being on the platform considering how openly manipulative and uh, deceitful it is. Uh, Facebook might be great for you guys, and I'm not at all suggesting everybody get off of it, but at the same time, I think everybody should get off it. So, <laughs> so there is that. But today, I had one too many negative interactions on Twitter, and I just hit the eject button. You know, I had built myself up to, you know, like 6,000 some odd followers on Twitter. And I'm just sick and tired of the negativity. I'm sick and tired of engaging with dishonest people or irrational people or people who have something negative and awful to say about me and my personality or my opinions. I don't need it. And I don't know why I keep putting myself in that position where I receive that. That's not necessary. It's not good for my mental health. It's not good for my emotional well-being. It just hurts me. And I don't really understand why I would keep doing that to myself. So I decided... I need to do something to change this condition because I cannot change the world and I cannot change the fact that there are people out there who take great pride and joy in hurting other people online. And I can't really easily tell the difference between trolls and people who are trying to hurt me versus people who are trying to be engaging openly but have a little bit of a problem speaking civilly. Because there are those people. There are people who are very good, very nice, very honest people who want to engage with you, who really enjoy, enjoy your work. But the way they engage is pretty insulting. And I do it right back. And that's not good either, right? And so maybe I should stop doing that. And so I am. And, um, and there is really no reason why I need to be engaging or sharing all of my you know, day-to-day -day thoughts and brain farts and dad jokes and everything else with everybody on a daily basis. It's nice, but it's not necessary. And it sort of just opens me up to too much. And, uh, and I can't take it. And it's my, it's my problem. And, uh, and so I'm going to own that. And I'm just going to say that out loud. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer that commentary. Public figures are often reviled and ridiculed and told that they need to man up woman up, deal with it. You're in the public eye. You have to deal with it. What's your problem? You're the one who's wrong. If you can't hear it, you know, if you can dish it out, you can't take it, all that. I mean, I've heard all of that over the years, many, many, many times. And those challenges to my ego and challenges to my uh, dignity and integrity and critical thinking skills and all of it is just button pushing. You know, it's just people who want to insult you and they just insist that you stand there and take it. And I started thinking to myself, would I deal with anyone telling me any of these things if it was in real life, if it was in my face? And I wouldn't. I would turn around and walk away. You know, if somebody came up and said some of the things that people write freely in the comments to my videos or have said to me online, I would either punch them in the face or turn around and walk away, but I would not be willing or able to have rational discourse with them as they demand I do despite their taunts and barbs and criticisms, right? And so I, you know, why would I do that? Why? I don't feel the need to do that anymore. And I guess um, it's better for me. It's better for my channel. It's better for you guys if I don't put myself out there that way any longer. So, um, so I'm not going to. So there won't be any change at all in this channel. In fact, if anything, you're going to be seeing more content over the next year as I have some really good ideas and, and, and content I want to get out. And, um, and I've told you guys in, in my recent episodes what some of that work is and what it's going to be and what we're going to do. And I'm already started on it. And it's quite exciting. And, I am, and I'm really excited to do that work. That's not the hard part for me. That's the exciting, fun part. It's, it's the engagement part that I, that I really suck at. And so 
why keep doing that to me or you? You know, I, I think that makes the most sense. So, um, so that's how that is. I'm not on any other social media platform of any kind. I deactivated my Twitter account uh, today. Um, and I don't plan on going back there. And, um, and I've pulled off of uh, a Reddit long time ago because that place is a real cesspool. There is just nothing productive happening there. And, uh, and I'm done. I'm done with all that. So uh, maybe I'm just a dinosaur and maybe I'm just too old school and maybe I just can't keep up with the things these days. And, and maybe the kids won and maybe Osa won and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I just don't care. I need to get my head out of that space. And this is the way that I'm choosing to do that. So thank you very much for listening to me rant and go on about this. Now let's get on with your questions. Nick C. The Sea Org being paramilitary, people are expected to be out of bed at a certain time in the morning. It would seem, quote unquote, the morning people have an easier time adapting to the daily routine in the Sea Org. At the same time, all-nighters are common, and that plays in favor of the night owls. What category were you before you joined? Did the Sea Org life change how your biological clock works? What happened to your daily routine when you got out? Nick, this is a great question, and nobody's really asked me about this before, so I appreciate you asking me, um, because uh, my sleep basically got destroyed by Scientology, and in my experience in the Sea Org especially, but staff was already stressing me out. The Sea Org just took it way over the top and basically blew it up. And, um, and, and by that I mean I haven't had a full, decent, full, restful night's sleep in decades. I, I just don't sleep that way. Um, and it, and, and it, uh, the reason for that was purposeful. The Sea Org did that on purpose. L. Ron Hubbard did that on purpose. That is called uh, psychosis via sleep deprivation, and it's, and it's a purposeful thing. Not that I'm psychotic, but you know what I'm saying. It, it can make you into this really, you know, it can really screw with your head. It can really screw with your psyche, and it can screw with your energy levels and, and your stability and your mental and, and, and physical makeup and all that. Sleep is really, really, really important. And uh, as a control mechanism, as, as a method of coercive control, it is, it is one of the easiest things to do to people to just force them to stay awake for, you know, hours at a stretch when they shouldn't be, when they should be resting. And that messes with their mental health. And over time, that will destroy their mental health. You can kill somebody through that kind of thing. Or you can make somebody so crazy they go around killing other people. I mean, it's really, it's really maddening. So, um, so I, I, I say all that because I'm trying to, trying to make it clear that this is a powerful uh, coercive control mechanism, sleep deprivation and messing with people's uh, schedules. And so um, that is a routine thing in the Sea Org, and it's, and it's a purposeful part of that culture to, to, to have you just another way that they have you on edge all the time. Uh, okay, so that all being said, it worked on me. It certainly did. I, I definitely had my sleep ruined over over that schedule because there would be late, late, late nights, followed by early, early mornings, and um, and this just goes on for years and years of the stretch, right? Um, as far as what category I was before I joined, I was definitely a night owl type person, and I still naturally am. It's, it's way easier for me to stay up way late into the, into the morning hours and go to sleep and sleep in uh, until 10, 11, 12 than it is for me to get up at like 5 in the morning. I, I, I hate that. And yet, every single day, I wake up around 5.30. 4.30, 5.30, if not, definitely somewhere in there, I'm going to wake up. Now, what I do with that, sometimes I go back to sleep, sometimes I don't, um, but that's what happens, right, every single day. And I will often wake up frequently during the night, although that has, that has gotten less over the years, and I have been getting more stable sleep, I think, over, you know, over time since leaving. But this is still something that I struggle with and work on a, a lot. Um, well, I guess I should say I struggle with it. I don't really work on it a lot. There's not a lot I know that I can do about it. 
Um, you know, I don't have the time or resources to go get sleep therapy or anything like that. I don't have money for that. So I just deal with it. Right. Um, but that's, that's kind of what's happening with that. Um, and as far as, um, you know, my daily routine when I got out, well, it was just work, 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 work. I mean, when I first got out of the Sea Org, it was just kind of, you know, every waking hour is, is all about spending that time productively, you know, as we've gone over so often. And as far as the sleep goes, um, I, I don't know what to say about that. I, I you know, it was, it was certainly nice to get out of the Sea Org and have a schedule of my own where I could sleep in whenever I wanted. And don't, don't get me wrong, I certainly did. Um, but it just wasn't a full night's sleep is all I'm saying, right? And, and it hasn't been. So uh, anyway, so that's, you know, that's the, that's the situation with that. And um, I don't know. Thanks, thanks for asking. I, I, I guess I could comment more about, you know, about all of that. But I, I, I think that covers the, the main points I wanted to say. Ross Blocker. I was wondering how much we know about the changes made to Scientology texts in 2007 that accompanied David Miscavige's event, The Golden Age of Knowledge for Eternity, The Basics. Which books were affected and what was the nature of the changes? My guess is that the updates were fairly minor and the main impetus for reissuing these books was a cash grab. Were there significant doctrinal changes? Were there embarrassing passages that were scrubbed? Were there other motives? Do we know who made the edits? Do we know what Scientology did with the recalled books? I'd love to know more about this interesting moment in Scientology history. One of my show's listeners sent me to the site ScientologyAudit.com, which in turn led me to TrueLRH.com. There was some interesting info there, but none of the comparisons seemed too dramatic, and I wasn't really sure of the author's perspective. I thought you might have a clearer um, understanding of the overall picture. Hey, Ross, thank you for this question. It's a big one. This is a big, big topic, and I can't really address all of it down to the common everything. But let me tell you in broad strokes, this was a three-hour briefing event from David Miscavige breaking down all the changes that had been made or a bunch of the changes. He actually didn't break down all the changes by the comma, but he gave the broad strokes for every single property, every single book, and lecture and what they had done. And there were some massive changes to a couple of the texts and very, very, very minor and cosmetic changes to others. The Way to Happiness, for example, didn't really have a single comma changed. It was just a cover change, um, you know, in the cover picture. Uh, on the other hand, Science of Survival, which was a book that was published in 1952, had massive edits in it because that had been a very, very poorly edited book. It had been based on um, dictated uh, a work from Hubbard that apparently, um, um, what was it, DeMille, um, Phil, I, I can't remember the guy's first name. Anyway, Cecil DeMille's son or cousin or something worked with Hubbard during that time, and he uh, was the one who apparently was compiling and writing most of Science of Survival, at least according to John Atack's uh, testimony on that. And um, But it was from Hubbard's dictated uh, statements, and he recorded the book, right? He dictated it. And, um, and there were massive problems. I mean, you will just never find, if you go back to the earlier editions of Science of Survival pre this release, you will find just enormous run-on sentences and way, way, way too many semicolons. Uh, that was the big joke about Science of Survival is they got rid of like 900 semicolons or something, right? The March of the Semicolons. That was the big joke about that, that David Miscavige even admitted to, right? He said, yeah, they, they kind of, the transcriptionists and the typists and the editors went a little wacko. And he blamed all of them rather than blaming L. Ron Hubbard for any of these issues. Um, he also seemed to imply that L. Ron Hubbard never examined or looked at any of his published books after he wrote them. Which is which stretches credibility, you know. It doesn't seem really very, very, very right uh, that Hubbard would have seen these texts, seen how bad they were, and just let them go. I think they the books were exactly the way Hubbard wanted them. <laughs> in other words, is what I'm kind of saying. But Miscavige went through and made all these changes anyway, and some of them, like the semicolon thing, actually made some sense. But others were whole passages and, and parts of text that were moved or shifted around. And he said that some parts 
just hadn't made any damn sense in the books. And the reason why is because in a couple places they had found whole pages had been mis-typeset. Uh, and so the books were actually out of order within their own manuscript, right, which was whack. And that this had gone on unnoticed or uncorrected for decades is really quite something. But kind of tells you a little bit about just how interesting Scientologists' minds must be to be able to make sense out of this nonsense. And that's what they were doing. And I would not put it so harshly if I hadn't just done a full research project breaking down Hubbard's nonsense and realizing for myself very, very clearly that he says things and asserts claims and makes truth claims that are absolutely ludicrous over and over and over again in his written and spoken works. So, um, so it's hardly a surprise that we can go back and find this material was put together badly, you know, from an editorial position or point of view, and yet Scientologists could still make it make sense. You see what I mean? Like that's kind of that's kind of wild, but it happens to be true. Um, the minutia that you'll find broken down on ScientologyAudit.com and TrueRH.com, like you mentioned, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And I'd have to literally go in point by point for you, Ross to explain the significance of each of those changes, because some of them are no big deal at all. And others could be quite important in terms of the minutia of auditing techniques. You know, it's a big deal if you change the command or the questions, or if you change certain parts of the processes in auditing. And some of these changes that were suggested by the, by the edits and the basics did make some changes to how Scientology was thought about or, you know, basic philosophical stuff. Not actually, I shouldn't use the word basic there, though, because none of the fundamentals of Scientology really changed as a result of all of the revisions. Uh, the Thetan is still the Thetan. The tone scale is still the tone scale. The chart of human evaluation is still what it is. Um, auditing as a technique, the auditing commands, the theory, none of that basic, basic stuff changed. And none of the axioms were revised or the factors or the pre-logics or the cues or all these things I'm talking about are very, very fundamental, um, you know, to the philosophy of Scientology. So, so, so Miscavige didn't make any changes to that stuff. It was way more minutiae kind of stuff that actually ended up changing. And of course, as you say, it was really just a cash grab and the, and the, the sort of, um, I guess agreed upon, you know, wisdom in the X community about the changes to the books are that they were being done. One is a cash grab, pure, pure, change the books, change the covers, get more money for them. And two, to keep the copyrights going because Hubbard's works um, have gone into the public domain, as I understand it, as I understand the, the law and copyright and all that stuff. But when you change it, then I think that is supposed to do something to keep the copyrights going. I'm not totally an expert on copyright law, so I only can speak to it to that degree. Um, but, I, but that's been put forward as one of the reasons why Miscavige would be making such massive changes to the entire body of L. Ron Hubbard's work and why he has now pulled all of the red volumes and green volumes as a whole. Like, they're just not around a whole lot anymore. And they are only dishing out bits and pieces of Hubbard's tech as they go through and revise and change everything. And make no mistake, one of the reasons for that is absolutely to remove offending passages from Hubbard's lectures especially, but also his written work remove contradictions, hypocrisies, uh, things that don't make sense, stuff like that. Miscavige has got a huge project going, and he has for the last couple of decades, working on precisely that. So, um, so we're seeing right now, Miscavige is talking about a new organization executive course, the green volumes, all the policies, and training everybody on this new stuff. So we can expect to see re-releases of Hubbard's policies and bulletins in the near future on that line, just like was done with all of the basic books. And you'll probably be able to line them up and do issue-by-issue issue comparisons and all of that and see where all the changes he made are. 
The funny thing about all of this is it's not like Hubbard's works were ever pure in the first place. And this is one of the most fascinating things about Scientology is trying to actually parse out where all of it came from. John, John Atak did a brilliant paper on possible origins of Dianetics and Scientology where he kind of, kind of addressed this in the broad strokes. Where did Dianetic theory come from, with repeater technique, Scientology principles, the Phaeton, all these ideas, the bridge, the cross, all this stuff, right? It's got occult origins and, and uh, old philosophical origins and Gnosticism and, and, you know, like we've talked about with Madame Blavatsky and, and the Ascended Masters and just the long lineage of occult knowledge that, that Scientology drew from and copied from. Uh, as did many, many other 20th century philosophies and New Age works. So it's funny because when you line up all the differences between the old and the new, you, you know, the old wasn't so pure either, is what I'm kind of trying to say. Policy letters and books and, and issues that Hubbard had his name on were never even seen by him sometimes, or at least not, uh, and certainly not written by him. His wife wrote tons of issues, uh, his aides, his juniors, other Scientologists came up with tons of Scientology principles and actually even wrote the issues and they put Hubbard's name on it. And tracing all that down is quite a chore. Um, and, and it's a little bit of a thankful task because at the end of the day, who cares, right? I mean, it's interesting and it's certainly something that should be done, but at the end of the day, how many people really care that much about where this policy letter came from when the policy letter is just absolutely nonsense in the first place, right? So, so there's a little bit of a, of a, boy, this is all really interesting, but how much time do we really need to spend on it versus, um, you know, what are the real world effects of this? And when we can talk about that side of it, then we're looking at the cash grab and the copyrights and the, well, you know, why would Miscavige do this? Well, clearly, Scientologists will just keep giving over the money if they can be convinced that they're doing it for a good reason. And Miscavige is giving them good reasons by saying these materials weren't pure, they weren't on source, and we've changed it now and we've made it better, and so now you need to pay for that. And that's basically what he did. And this is kind of interesting. As far as the last question you asked about where did they go or what happened to those books— the old, book, the old books, we pulped them. We got rid of them. We burned them. We, we shredded them. We, got, we, we destroyed every copy of all the old stuff we could dig our hands up on. Um, and, include, and this was kind of funny because some of us were, even at the time it was happening, in the Sea Org or on staff, people were taking the red volumes or old copies of the books and saving them. And, and they were like uh, storing them away in their storage spaces and stuff because they didn't want to get rid of uh, either their investment or the old material. They thought there was still valid stuff in it. And, 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 um, and from their point of view, there was. So Miscavige's uh, efforts at revision and, and, and updating and changing and destroying all the old, which was the normal routine in Scientology, you know, is to destroy the old and only stick with the new, um, even that was being sabotaged a little bit by uh, even existing Scientologists who who were holding on to that old stuff. So, uh, so it's an interesting, interesting thing. It's just kind of fun to, to think about and talk about. So thanks for asking about that, Ross. And I, I hope my answer gave you something better than nothing, but it would be way, way, way too much to get into detail by detail point of all of the changes to those materials because they were legion. There were a lot of changes. Um, and that's, that's, that's the best I can do for you in this format here. Maybe at some point we should address that more, uh, more head on, but, um, but there you go. Kim Kelly, why did LRH design Scientology in such a way that you don't figure out about OT3 until you're so far in? Did he add and tack these beliefs on later? And why do they seem so out of place with the rest of Scientology? Did he create them when he was going nuts, and did he actually believe it? What an interesting question, because it's made me think about this a little bit in ways I haven't really thought about it before. And let me, let me tell you why. Uh, so thanks for asking this, Kim. 
OT3, the Xenu narrative or the Xenu story, the whole genocide and volcanoes and atomic bombs and all that, that whole story and the body thetans and stuff that came from that was released in 1967 when L. Ron Hubbard had gone off for a year and started the C organization. So he had had tax exemption revoked by the IRS in the United States in 1967. He had left St. Hill because he had gone down to South Africa, got kicked out of that country, trying to set up shop for Scientology down there. And so he decided the only safe place for himself was out on the ocean. And for years, he was exclusively out on, out on the water. You know, they'd come into port, you know, from time to time. But, but Hubbard was out on the, on the ocean for a couple of years, avoiding the law, avoiding uh, bureaucracy, entanglement, society, news, all of that stuff. He was hiding. And he was basically hiding for the rest of his life. But, but it started then. Scientology had gotten to the point where clears were now being made on a factory line basis. John McMaster had been the first at St. Hill, and then there were a whole series of clears, and clears were just popping off, and they could make clears stably now. So the point is that by that point, with Hubbard off on the ocean, Scientology now delivering on clears— Hubbard's task was to come up with something new and different and exciting that would entice and keep the money coming in. The OT levels were the, were the result of that, were the answer to that. He had already come up with OT levels one and two at St. Hill before he left or, you know, working during this time period. And OT one and two have to do with orienting yourself as an OT and and then uh, auditing on something called uh, goals, problem masses, or GPMs and dichotomies, and has to do with identity and, and uh, uh, personality and stuff like that, who you've been, who you've not been, who you've opposed, that kind of stuff. So that was kind of stuff that Hubbard had, had sort of discovered or researched as part of the St. Hill Special Briefing course and those materials in the 1960s, in the, in, from 1961 to 66. He was doing the briefing course. Then he takes off onto the, you know, and starts the Sea Org. So we basically, what I'm trying to say is he needed something new and different and exciting to offer Scientologists. And having gone off and disappeared for a year, he comes back out with this lecture that he says, I nearly killed myself. I broke my back. I broke my arm. This has been very arduous, but I have discovered the secrets of the universe. <laughs> I mean, what? But that's what he said. He said he got the trap, the reason why we have war, criminality, insanity. He nailed it. He said he found it. And that was what the Xenu story represented. And he couldn't tell us about it. He said in this lecture, it was called Ron's Journal 67 in 1967. He released this thing. I think it was October or November of 67. And he says in this briefing, in this lecture that he gives, that um, not only did it almost kill him, but that there is this great, vast conspiracy existing right now on planet Earth amongst bankers and international financiers and media personalities and media owners. And these guys and psychiatry, by the way, can't ever forget them. And this great big worldwide conspiracy is uh, aiming at Scientology because it, Scientology has the only workable technology that can free mankind and save the world. And so this vast array of enemy forces were now, um, you know, coming against Scientology and against L. Ron Hubbard. And so Hubbard was off fighting the good fight. And coming up with the goods and saving the universe. And all Scientologists have to do is go along for the ride. So they go clear. And, oh, no, you're not done yet. There's OT1 and 2. And now this whole super secret OT3. And I can't tell you anything about it except that it was this great catastrophe that destroyed this planet and everything else in this sector of the universe. And it's been a desert ever since. That's what Hubbard said. It's been a desert here ever since, and we're on this prison planet, and the secret is so insidious and so dangerous that it could kill you if you find out before you even are ready for it. I mean, what a perfect marketing ploy, if you will, because 
all the reasons Scientologists had to stop doing Scientology and that it clear, right? They get clear and they're like, oh, I'm clear. Great. I'm done. I, I guess this is as far as I can go. Oh, no, 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 not so fast. Here's Xenu, right? And that was why it was put out at the time that it was put out. Is Scientology had to keep going. It wasn't done. Hubbard couldn't say it was done. So he had to keep putting stuff out there. And then, of course, he harps about how everybody had also, in addition to OT3, at the same time, 1967, 68, 69, Hubbard claims that having gone off for a year and not overseeing all of what's going on, Everybody had gone off the rails, and Scientology had had started being what he called quickied, where they were doing Scientology too fast, and they weren't getting all the full results. And so, hey guys, you got to slow down. You got to do all this auditing. You got to really spend time at it. You got to really work at it, because that's where the money's at. See, if you get through all the grades and all the auditing in an hour, then you're only giving them a few hundred bucks. But if it takes you tens or hundreds of hours to get through the grades and get up to clear, now it's tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars, see? So Hubbard took great pains from 1967 to 69 to add to and put as much into this thing as he could. And that was also followed with a whole uh, uh, shakeup of the auditor training and the Class 8 course was invented during this time for auditors. So there was a lot of stuff being done to reinforce that Scientology is going to take you a long time and it's going to invest a lot of money in it in order for you to get all the way to clear and OT. And that was kind of the time period when Hubbard sort of made that the reality of Scientology. He had, he had created this bridge and it had all these steps on it. And then he, then he went off. And people tried to collapse those steps down into something a lot faster and a lot simpler. And he went, no, 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 no. You got you to gotta, you gotta stretch this thing out, man. You got to work on this. And all through the 70s then, it was more and more of that and more rundowns and new era Dianetics and more OT levels and more stuff to do. And that's kind of what happened through the 70s and 80s with Scientology is just more stuff got piled on and piled on and piled on. And the bridge developed and grew and became bigger and bigger into its current version. So it kind of all started there in a way. And, um, and that's why I thank you for asking me this question because I, I hadn't really um, sort of thought about the timeline of Scientology that way before. But, uh, but that's kind of how it went down. So uh, I, I, hope that's, I hope that's interesting. The Duke of Chug, how would a Scientology org react if a post-op transgender person came in and wanted to become a Scientologist? Would she be allowed to progress up the bridge to total freedom? Would she be allowed to join the Sea Org? Would the Church of Scientology try to make a transgender person detransition even if they've already had uh, male-to-female or female-to-male surgery, which is irreversible? Also, I know the Church of Scientology publicly claims to welcome gay people, and then privately they have to stick with Hubbard's early 1900s view on sexuality, which harshly condemn homosexuality. I know they tell gay people that their sexual orientation is a perversion that needs to be fixed through $200 an hour Scientology auditing sessions. With that in mind, if a trans woman dated a cis man, would Scientology consider her to be straight, thereby agreeing that she is a woman? Or would they reject her gender identity and say that she needs to date women, even though this would be a lesbian relationship, which the church considers to be low on the tone scale? I'm not sure if L. Ron Hubbard ever wrote anything about whether being transgender is acceptable, but I am sure that he would oppose it based on his other views. All right, Duke, thank you for this question. Um, basically, I have pretty much said and think that all the trans issues fall under LGBTQ, which falls under the general thing you describe in your question already. As you have so accurately described, uh, Scientology considers any version of LGBT activity of any kind to be a sexual perversion, to be uh, indicate that the person is aberrated, uh, basically kind of psychotic, uh, kind of messed up, right? Kind of uh, mentally loopy. 
And uh, because Hubbard was a firm believer, as everybody kind of was in 1950s, that, uh, you know, how you're born and the gender of your body is who you really are. And there isn't any arguing with that. There isn't any uh, altering of that. There's no modification of that. And there is certainly no uh, idea that you were born a woman in a man's body or vice versa. That is just insanity as far as Scientology is concerned. And to this day, that's how they still think about it, because that's how Elrond Hubbard tells them to think about it. That's that's really the bottom line on the whole thing, and it's 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 actually kind of it's, it's that simple. Um, how Scientologists resolve the cognitive dissonance of current transgender cultural issues and L. Ron Hubbard's words is gonna be kind of unique for each individual Scientologist, and this is this makes it very hard to answer a question like this, of course. Organizationally, you know, uh, the culture of Scientology is exactly as you and I already understand. But individually, any one Joe Scientologist or Sally Scientologist might have or know LGBTQ people in their lives and therefore be more sympathetic or understanding of the plight and the emotional problems and all of that. So that individual Scientologist might end up being sympathetic to their reasoning or their cause or their feelings or, or attitudes about their trans situation or feelings or identity, but Scientology as a whole and as a culture is really the only thing we can talk about, you know, in terms of how the organization's going to deal with it. And I can guarantee you, I mean, I can guarantee you that no one in the LGBTQ world, um, especially a trans person, is ever going to be allowed onto the OT levels. They're just not. They're just not going to be considered trustworthy. And that's really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is it's not about the biology and the gender and, the, and, the, and even the personality problems that Scientologists will lay on a person who is, who is in the LGBT world. It's not, it, it's, it's not even all of that. It's, it's that. it's that Hubbard says you can't trust them. They are untrustworthy. They present as one thing, but they're really something else. And therefore, how can you trust them? And that's why they won't give you the access to the confidential stuff in Scientology, because they just don't trust it. And that's that's kind of what it comes down to. It's It's stupid as hell. None of it makes any damn sense. It is incredibly hypocritical. Because if you are truly a spiritual being who has no gender and never did, then why should it matter one bit what you're doing in the bedroom? It shouldn't. It shouldn't matter one bit. But L. Ron Hubbard came with a lot of baggage, including 1950s cultural mentality. And that's what carries forward in Scientology to this day. And that's why we have to uh, keep answering questions like this, because this is the this is what they do: is they they take that culture from seventy years ago and they say, "Nope, still works," even though it totally doesn't work. <laughs> and that's and so you know what what kind of experience is somebody going to have? Well, it's going to be a little random. I can't tell you exactly precisely what's going to happen to them for for all the reasons I've stated, but I can tell you. And I can feel quite sure in telling you that they are not going to be accepted for who they are or how they see themselves. They're constantly going to be worked over by Scientologists who want to change them back to who they were born as because Scientologists are stuck in that problem that who you were born as biologically is who you're supposed to be. And anything away from that is your problem because you're trying to alter who you're supposed to be in your body. And again, don't ask me to make that make sense because it really doesn't make sense with the rest of Hubbard's teachings. It's just plain hypocrisy. And that's really the bottom line on it. David Brown. I was on the Scientology subreddit recently, and somebody made a post about Ron's org in Switzerland. I was most amused to then discover that the group has officially declared Xenu an SP. However, 
How do independent Scientologists reconcile publicly declaring Xenu like this with the idea that anyone who finds out about OT3 too early will die? Surely by putting that declare in the public domain, by their own logic, they run the risk of killing thousands of people who have now read about OT3 ahead of time. All right, David, thank you very much for this. Now, here's the, here's the thing on this. There's a couple different possible answers to this, okay? Uh, one, and the one that comes to mind right away, and what I've seen for myself in engaging with independent Scientologists, is that they don't buy into everything Hubbard said is true. When you're an independent Scientologist, you get to cherry pick what parts of Scientology you believe and don't. And no one gets to tell you what, that what you are cherry picking is true or not true. See, all of Scientology is total nonsense. But there are little bits and pieces that make sense and that can help and that can, you know, uh, make, a, make a change in a person's life if they do this, right? For example, taking a walk is kind of a good thing to do if you're kind of introverted and upset and like, Ugh. but just because L. Ron Hubbard said, go take a walk, doesn't make him a brilliant person, right? This is the kind of level of stuff I'm talking about, right? It's like really simple stuff can help. And when somebody's not getting help from any other source in their life, then they can think that L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology is brilliant stuff and it absolutely helped them. And so they're going to stick with it. And that's what you get with independent Scientologists is people who are sticking with it, but they're only sticking with certain parts of it, the parts that they agree with and the rest of it, they throw away. And as a body, I have seen independent Scientologists and as individuals, they have told me this and they have said, you know, oh yeah, Hubbard was, uh, was a con man, a scumbag liar, all that, but look at what he created. Look at, look at all this, you know, genius stuff that he came up with. Uh, you don't have to be, you know, a saint in order to discover truth. True enough. Um, but when you're a proven plagiarizer, liar, serial philanderer and con man, maybe <laughs> we might possibly doubt some of your truth claims. And of course, that's Scientology in a nutshell, right? Um, the other thing that you will see here, the other reasoning on this, and this is a this is a more fine point. This is more finely reasoned. But L. Ron Hubbard himself put out the Xenu story in *Revolt in the Stars*. That 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 treatment that he wrote for a movie after *Star Wars* came out. You know, L. Ron Hubbard wanted to get some of that *Star Wars* money and get on that action. So he wrote *Revolt in the Stars*, and he used the Xenu story. However, what he took out of the Xenu story was all the implanting and all the references to any spirituality, right? All the, all the uh, implants, the religious stuff, the body thetans, all of that got taken out of the story. And if you just stick with the Xenu genocide story, that's not going to kill you. It's the body thetan stuff that's supposed to re-stimulate you and kill you. So that's the difference there. So you can get away with acknowledging that Xenu was a dude and it was an incident on the track and it happened to all of us and we really got screwed up from it and this planet became a prison planet as a result without getting into the full story. And those kind of hairs are the kind of hairs you can split to make this kind of thing make sense in the Scientology world. So I hope that makes sense to you. It does to a Scientologist uh, and certainly to independent Scientologists. And that might be another reason why. So there you go. Anthony Spurgeon. Are you familiar with a character named Zemnu in Marvel Comics created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby? He first appeared in an issue of Journey into Mystery, a Marvel issue from 1960. He's basically a giant hairy alien who was banished from his home planet and sent to the prison planet Earth. Do you think it's likely at all that Hubbard took this Marvel character and adapted him into his OT3 material? I had heard another story about Hubbard being influenced by Star Wars to some degree and wondered if there was any legitimacy to that. Anthony, it is entirely possible that L. Ron Hubbard read this comic book and was somehow influenced by it. However, we will note the seven-year difference. L. Ron Hubbard tended to take things right away and use them right away in his work. He would read it, take it, put it into Scientology. Or somebody like the Burners would come and present study tech to him and tell him all about how misunderstood words 
and the lack of mass or, or not having the thing you're studying in front of you is harmful to your study and could get in the way of your study, the next day, L. Ron Hubbard is in standing in front of his students in the lecture hall telling them about study tech and how it's his invention and telling them whole stories about this. So he was kind of quick on the, on the draw on this. And that's the only reason why I have to doubt that he had taken this story from 1960 in a comic book and then put all of Scientology into this thing. But it's close enough of a parallel that you kind of have to scratch your head and go, yeah, but, you know. And maybe it's entirely possible that somebody didn't hand him the comic book until 1966 or 67. <laughs> It is entirely possible that L. Ron Hubbard read comic books and got ideas from them. That is absolutely a possibility. I can't say it's not. I know for a fact L. Ron Hubbard took uh, material from the National Enquirer and from Reader's Digest and other um, sort of home improvement or, or, or dailies or weekly circulars and stuff like that. Hubbard would read that stuff. And, he, and, and we know we have evidence of that because he made policies out of it or wrote issues about the stuff that he would read. So, um, and John Atak and I have talked about as far as sources of, of Scientology and how well read L. Ron Hubbard might have been, that he wasn't well read. He didn't like to study. It hurt his head. And he was not a, a well-read person, but he liked to make it seem like he was. You see, he would fake it. He'd pretend. And so this is why I grant that it's entirely possible that this comic book story is real. But we'd, at the end of the day, nobody has any proof of anything. It's just an interesting coincidence. And it certainly is interesting. As far as the Star Wars thing, as I just mentioned, uh, L. Ron Hubbard was big on Star Wars because it was such a cash cow. And nobody saw it coming. Star Wars took everybody completely by surprise in 1977. So when he saw that happening, he went, well, I got a story I can tell that's, that's better than that. And he put together Revolt in the Stars. And if you read Revolt in the Stars, you are going to very quickly come to the conclusion, uh, probably by about page two or three, that it is no Star Wars, <laughs> and it is really bad, uh, and that's why it never got off the ground. So, um, so that's the that's the story on that. All right, everybody, thanks for coming around and listening to me blabber on like this at a mad rate. I really do appreciate your viewership and your support, and I should be clear that I that I that I really appreciate it. Um, after my rant at the beginning of the show, I just want you guys to know that um, you know, social media aside, I love my job. And I love what I do, and I love helping you guys out as best I can. So, uh, again, thank you for your viewership. Thank you for your support, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.